Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is John Ram, Planning Director for the City and County of San Francisco. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Courtney. Great to be here. So give us a little snapshot of what's happening in San Francisco as it relates to planning. Well, um, San Francisco, um, as I said in my opening comments at the conference, uh, San Francisco has become kind of the poster child of both the successes and challenge of, of 21st century cities. Um, you know, you'll hear the term housing crisis um, frequently spoken here, the cost of housing, the homelessness crisis, and that sort of thing that is being, much of which is being fueled by the growth in employment and many people moving to the city. And um, so that's creating its own set of challenges. Um, but it's also um, has, these are extraordinarily, extraordinary economic times in the city, right? The unemployment rate is hovering around 2%. Um, Tens of thousands of new jobs have been created over the last uh, eight or nine years. And there's, um, it's it's an amazing time in the Bay Area. So it's a combination of the kind of benefits of this amazing growth that we're seeing, coupled with the challenges that that growth brings um, around the cost of housing, displacement issues, transportation impacts and the things that really many cities are grappling with right now and we seem to have them all in one place at one time. I saw a report published this week uh, by a local not-for-profit or maybe a statewide not-for-profit who claimed that it's going to cost 12.7 billion dollars to end homelessness in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Is that just a catchy headline or um, do you and your team, you know, under the direction of, of the mayor, um, see it as, as a mandate? Because we're all, all of us are familiar with sort of the headline that catches everyone's attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. I, um, I will say to start that the planning department has a role to play in addressing homelessness, but it's not a, it's kind of an indirect role. Um, so I don't get directly involved in the kind of financing or, kind of production of housing per se, we have a big role to play in approving all sorts of new housing, affordable and not. Um, And of course, we are encouraging and trying to streamline as much as we can, particularly on the affordable side. That number is not particularly shocking to me, given the numbers that we have. And I I suspect, and I don't know the specifics of the study that you're mentioning, I suspect it's also, it's not just providing, physically providing housing, but also the kind of services that would go along with it. Um, and, and in some cases, that becomes the more uh, challenging and costly aspect of providing housing for low-income populations is the, is the kind of suite of services that are usually provided at that type of housing. Um, all of that is very, very important. Um, so the cities, what is interesting is that we're, I think we're looking at several different models of how to shelter the population, including uh, navigation centers, which is something that we started here several years ago under Mayor Lee at that time, which are a different way of sheltering people. Um, it's, it's an example where they are, these are temporary structures and they operate as shelters, but they provide food service, um, uh, you know, uh, laundry and um, uh, bathing services, and they provide um, uh, lots of social services. And residents can bring their belongings, their pets, their family members. So it's, it's very different than a typical shelter. Um, and the idea is that there's a whole series of placement services that they can then hopefully get into permanent housing, go back to family or friends, a whole number of things that happen to get them into a better situation. And that model has been fairly successful. Um, I, you know, I don't know how the numbers, but... It is not inexpensive. Even though the buildings are temporary, the whole package of services that comes with it is expensive. So you gave us a great overview of kind of a snapshot of what's happening now. You've been planning director for eight years? Eleven. Eleven. Mm-hmm. So maybe share with us what's changed in that time, um, 
reflections on you know the types of things your department has seen or dealt with? Sure. Um, interestingly, when I talk to people who have been here a long time, many people say, well, you know, this has always been an expensive city, or at least in the last two or three decades uh, has been an expensive city. And they also say, you know, when I came here 30 years ago, there were homeless people on the street. Um, and I think that is probably true. What's, I think what's um, different now is uh, the pace of change overall in the city, not just on homelessness, of course. But um, since the recession, um, and really, which we came out of quite quickly, there has been an extraordinary influx of jobs and residents and development that is, well, I haven't actually looked at the numbers, but I think it's the, the city's biggest economic boom in a century. And um, that has caught a lot of us by surprise. I mean, including us in the planning department who simply weren't ready for it. Um, and I think that is true of a number of uh, cities in the country where this um, return to cities has happened in a very big way. I'd, l- I'd like to say that San Francisco has experienced this current economic boom as a kind of perfect storm between two factors. One is the interests of millennials and baby boomers to move back into central cities, combined with the incredible explosion of growth of the tech industry. Um, and those two factors have really focused on, on this city p- perhaps more than any other, although I know many cities are f- experiencing very similar things, but here it seems to be almost sort of the extreme in that case. So it's really fun and challenging and cool, but it's also you know a, a challenge for the people who live here and, um, and also uh, um, disruptive to many current residents. I think I read you, you guys process like 8,000 building permits a year? Or? Right. Well, what, what that number is, um, what is significant about that number is not that we process that number, because most cities do, but how many of those, and I forget the actual number of those, I think it's about 2,000, where that requires a more extensive level of review than the vast majority of cities. So 2,000 of those 8,000 requires much more detailed review, might require hearings, might require public notification. The comparable number in New York City, which has a 10 times the population, is 500. Wow. So it is the, there is a long history here of the, the community really constantly wrapping up their expectations of what they want from us and how we review projects and how they get involved and what gets built and that sort of thing. So you're not originally from San Francisco. I'm not. You're from Detroit. I grew up in Detroit. Tell us about how that shaped your interest in places and cities. Well, a um, couple of things. I attended a Jesuit high school in Detroit, and uh, in our final year of high school, we were required to do a half a day of community service every week. Um, and this was in the, I'm dating myself, in the early 70s, and um, and a time when Detroit was going through, starting to go through some serious economic upheavals and um, racial politics were playing a huge role in the city at that point. And um, so nonetheless, uh, you know, friends and classmates of I would go into um, parts of the city and get involved in community organizations and organizations that were working in the city. And I was fascinated by it. And I was also troubled by what I saw in a big way, and uh, it was so different from my experience, right? Because I grew up actually in a very, in a nearby um, suburb, but I didn't even have access for, the suburb I grew up in, for example, didn't have, didn't have sidewalks, didn't have streetlights, and at a very young age, I remember feeling so frustrated by how inaccessible I I've thought, or how cut off I was from the rest of the, the city or the rest of the surrounding area, and uh, and when I got into the city and got to high school and did this community service and sort of worked in the, frankly, in the, what we call the inner city, it was a whole different ballgame for me, and I was fascinated by it. I might just anecdotally give you another um, sort of moment in time for me that was very um, interesting, was um, actually in Chicago, um, your city. And uh, I was 12 years old, and my parents were taking me on a train from Detroit to Los Angeles to visit my sister who had moved to Los Angeles. This was in 1967, and I was 12 years old, and 
we our train was late of course this is pre amtrak the trains were not great <laughs> and we were we late, we were stuck in chicago for several several hours so we were at the train station and it would happen to be the day that chicago unveiled the huge picasso sculpture in front of the chicago civic center oh wow it was all over the front page of the Tribune, and I kept looking at this, and I'm thinking... Well, because it was quite controversial at the time, right? They hated it. Very controversial. I think it, it, I think it's safe to say, and I don't know my art history that well, but I think it's safe to say it was the first piece of major public art that was not traditional, right? The first time a kind of major piece of contemporary public art was kind of commissioned by a public agency and put in a public place, right? Not a bronze statue of some guy on a horse or something, right? <laughs> So um, it was amazing. I don't know. It just really struck a bow with me. And I begged my father to, to allow me to go see it, and he wouldn't. <laughs> you know, I was 12 years old, and we were just a few blocks away. Um, and, uh, but, it was, uh, but I was reading it in the newspaper thinking, this is wild. This is wild. This is cool. I want to know more about this. And it was the whole kind of civic nature of it. And, you know, I don't know. It was just it was fascinating to me. So um, fast forward several years, I was in uh, I was in Chicago, and they had an exhibit of the Picasso exhibit. And at the entrance to the exhibit, they had a photograph of the of the crowd around the statue, around the sculpture, and when they unveiled it, and they had recordings playing of people's comments about it. And it was fascinating, and it brought all these memories back. It was decades earlier, right? And people went, what is that? Is it a lion? Is it a woman? What the heck is this crazy thing, right? And it was a lot of fun. But it just, you know, it just sort of got me interested in kind of this sort of civic nature of places and kind of what was happening in cities, right? Yeah, passion for a place, right? Exactly, exactly. And now it's beloved and children slide on it and exactly people meet by it for lunch. Exactly. So in the spirit of your train ride out west, <laughs> we discussed how you have these Midwest roots. And I know then you spent some time in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. so maybe you could talk about that and then how you found your way out west. Sure. Um, so um, my training is actually in architecture and partly out of sort of uh, because I didn't know what planning was. <laughs> and I knew I was interested in kind of buildings and places. But, uh, and so I went to architecture as an undergrad at University of Michigan and then worked for a couple of years at an architecture firm in Detroit, Albert Kahn Associates, which is a fairly well-known firm at the time, did a lot of the early industrial buildings for the auto industry. Went to graduate school at University of Milwaukee, University, excuse me, of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and um, with an emphasis on urban design. And then was kind of, was looking for a job for a while. It was uh, in the early '80s. It was not the best of economic times. And ended up getting an offer from the Pittsburgh Planning Department from Paul Farmer, former CEO of APA, who was became my boss for ten years. So um, Paul was essentially assistant director of the department at the time. Um, and um, there was something about it, and uh, Paul did a good sales job on me, I have to admit. And there was something about the, uh, that it that was just seemed like the right fit to me. And I think it was only a few months after I arrived that I realized this is really what I wanted to do. I mean, it was... I felt extraordinarily lucky to be sort of, and I have felt lucky in my entire career since then, of sort of have feeling like the whole, um, my whole career in public service has been the absolutely right thing to do for me. Um, it's just the fit has been perfect. And after I left Pittsburgh, you know, I was there almost 15 years and started it as, as, a, as a kind of apprentice planner and worked my way up a bit. And then... Um, Left my position in, um, in in 1998 and ran away to Rome because I didn't, you know, I thought, okay, I need to go figure, clear my head and figure out what I want to do when I grow up. Spent a few months in Rome and just made a decision, and then something opened up in Seattle, and the timing was perfect. The city was one of the one of the cities I admired. But most, I think perhaps most interestingly, they were um, looking to create a new office of urban design in Seattle. Um, and they asked me to come out and set that up. And I was, you know, that was very intriguing to me and very exciting to me. So I took the plunge and moved out west in the, uh, I guess it was early 99. 
and I was there for about nine years. But halfway through my tenure there, I, there was a reorganization in Seattle, and I, they set up a, a long-range planning office and did some restructuring, and, and that office uh, was merged into a large, the larger department of what was then called planning and development. And I became, my title was planning director, and I was in charge of a staff of about 45 people who did long-range planning for Seattle at that point, um, and then came here in 2008. So that's quite a journey, and you're not only bi-coastal, but um, in Chicago we, we claim that area as the third coast. Right. Uh, so I'm wondering what, what you perceived or experienced as different, you know, having served in important roles or had formative you know, educational and work experience uh, across the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think about that a lot. It's, I think, partially a, requ- uh, uh, a result of where I was in Pittsburgh, a kind of post-industrial city that we now have termed legacy cities, and partly because of the timing of when I was there. Um, the kind of policy direction of our work could not have been more different, right, from Pittsburgh to the West Coast. Because in, in the early 80s in Pittsburgh, we were dealing with decline. And we were managing a declining population, uh, a, an economy whose kind of bottom had been pulled out from it with the decline and the, you know, the, the, basically the closing of the steel industry in that part of the country. And, um, and our job, I always see it, when I look back, I think our job was about getting people interested in cities again. I mean, and I, and I think about that in small ways, such as, you know, how we looked at the design of new buildings and there was still an era where people wanted to create suburban style development in the city, you know, so to build a shopping center with parking in front of it or to, um, you know, not design a building that came down to the street and had retail on the base or that kind of thing. And just in small ways, all that stuff. Right. And it was, uh, it was really kind of to try to create a more urban situation in a city that was desperate for growth and had a declining tax base. It was, I think that's a function of not only the fact that it was Pittsburgh and this sort of legacy industrial city, but of that era, right? Because we were still, even San Francisco during that time was seeing a fairly modest decline in population, right? So fast forward to 1999 when I started my job in Seattle, and it could not have been more different. I think one of the funny things, I mean, one of the funny, funny things about getting to, to the West Coast was just West Coast culture shock, right? I mean, it, it's just... The language is even different here. <laughs> I, I remember sitting in meetings where I had to ask somebody what the meaning of a word was. <laughs> and, As and if I think, you'd move to another country. Well, it's very interesting. Plus the whole cultural aspect, of sort of the much younger population, the entrepreneurial nature of the West Coast is quite different, or at least was quite different from my experiences in, in Pennsylvania and that part of the country. Um, and, and, and even in the 90s, Seattle was experience, starting to experience some substantial growth, right? So it was, it, it was uh, really about managing growth. But in a funny way, I mean, even in Seattle and even in San Francisco today, I mean, no mayor or, or very few elected officials are going to say, oh, we shouldn't grow. We shouldn't, you know, build more housing. Well, people, lots of people say we shouldn't be in more housing, but that's another story and it's entirely. But... But, you know, it is, in, in many ways, it's still about attracting growth. It's just managing growth in a different way and, and understanding the um, implications of our decisions and the implications of that growth. I mean, I, um, in those years between Pittsburgh and Seattle and San Francisco, our cities have become more complicated. Our, the way we look at the, our work has become more complicated. The range of issues that we deal with has become drastically more complicated. Interestingly enough, when, when I started in Pittsburgh, it was a relatively small agency of, I think, something like 45 people. And we had a quite a big diversity of, of, of functions in the department. We had um, what we now call current planning, of course, which is the permitting and, and process. But we also had economic planners and transportation planners and, and community planners whose job was to work directly with neighborhood organizations. And we also had the city's capital budget function in the planning department, which is sort of a traditional role for planning departments. Most of those functions I just mentioned went away in the 15 years I was there. So we contracted to a department that did some long-range planning and policy work and permits. 
And I think that happened in a lot of cities to their detriment, in my opinion, right? We, one of the things I like, one of the things I like about being a planner is that it's sort of one of the great generalist professions left, right? You have to kind of understand this great breadth of, of issues and rely on experts from a great variety of fields. So in the last decade or more in Seattle and now here, we're kind of moving in the other direction, um, back to real, realizing that we have to encompass those other uh, functions, those other areas of expertise. So I have transportation planners now. I have in, in San Francisco, we're, we're, we're working on sea level rise. We're working on, of course, 10 years ago, nobody even thought about what that was, the implications of that was. Um, so we're working on all these issues. I have community development staff, again, whose work is really about trying to stabilize our neighborhoods um, in light of all this growth. So I, I know it's, it's sort of gone in through this wave where, where planners did a lot of that stuff. A lot of that went away. And now I feel like we're finally realizing that we have to embrace those functions again, embrace those broader areas of expertise in our work as we, uh, as we, to do it right. In that vein, I find myself more and more interested in how decisions get made, structures of departments, right? This is, it could seem like very wonky or boring stuff, but if you've been around long enough, um, you, you know how these things go and should go and don't go. I think there's, there's something missing these days, and it's planner as leader. Mm. Some of this is, has been there forever, and some of it's definitely influenced by the fact that I live in Chicago. Mm. You know, cities handle planning in different ways, of right. course. Right. But I think it's important, and I take note of, when a city's head planner sort of achieves that status because mm-hmm. there's there's not too many i mean there's like gil kelly or mm-hmm. jeanette city Khan or mm-hmm. um well, interestingly jeanette was not chief planner she was the head of the transportation right 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 um but we claim her as ours of course of course <laughs> for good reason so you know getting these a smart person uh an urbanist mm-hmm. um who can navigate both the bureaucracy and the politics Mm-hmm. And I think it has an impact on cities. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the way Chicago does it. Right. So I'm fascinated um, by cities that do. I mean, even to have an office of urban design, you know, I'm very jealous. We don't have that. Or cities that have a chief architect or mm-hmm. things like this. Mm-hmm. And certainly, uh, as you mentioned, cities have reorganized and structured themselves differently throughout their history. So I'm wondering if that resonates with you, this idea of, do planners, should, should more planners have that role and kind of um, assert themselves in this way? Yes. I think it does require a certain level of um, courage and the um, willingness and ability to do that, um, to kind of push the envelope on what and how much visibility and uh, I don't know, power that a planning department might have. Power is not the quite, quite the right word. But um, one of the things that I think planners are very good at that is that helps us do this better is our convening roles. And I think part of the reason that um, the community is uh, feels like they have more um, agency to kind of tell us to do how to do our jobs as planners is because we invite them in more than just about any, any other aspect of public government, of public, uh, uh, public sector, right? So, um, you know, our processes tend to be longer. Our processes tend to be more uh, open arms in terms of inviting the public into the conversation. And, of course, many in the community claim it's not enough or it isn't the right type of public process. And I would, I would actually agree with the latter part of that. But... Um, uh, so that's part of it. Um, but I do think it's important. I mean, Gil was here for a while. You mentioned Gil Kelly, who's the director in Vancouver. And, of course, he's, he was here as the director of what we call citywide um, planning for a couple of years in long-range planning. And Gil did an excellent job of kind of broadening the scope of that work for us. Um, and I think it's um, important to recognize that that role is not about – kind of asserting some power, but it's about understanding how what we do affects the broad range of uh, city government and of the community in ways that many people don't understand, right? So 
I, you know, one of the things that I'm very grateful about to our former Mayor Lee who, is that he had invited us to be the co-leads of the city sea level rise task force. Um, in many cities, that would have been an engineering department. Or, um, but I think there was a recognition that land use and urban design has, has was integrally a, a part of understanding how sea level rise affects the city. And we are still doing that work in, in concert with several of our sister agencies. So it's that kind of thinking, I think, that we have to put forward as planners. I guess to follow that up, you know, in preparing for this conversation, I read some articles and my little planner heart filled with joy reading what some people might have characterized as a controversy, but what I saw as you asserting the skills and qualifications of planners around the idea of design review. Uh. And that some of your specific statements were very inspiring around what we're here to do and not do, mm-hmm. you know, the clarity around it. Um, the assertiveness to me was refreshing. Hmm. Thank you. Um, San Francisco has a long history of the department in particular getting very involved with architects and developers in the review process. And uh, rightly or wrongly, the city's codes over the years have been constantly amended to require more review, more public process, more... um, kind of input from the community and the department and the planning commission who reviews many of the bigger projects. So all that is to say that that it does take a long time and it is, um, I think it's fair to say that I, I, I think it takes too long. I do think it takes longer than I wished it would, um, especially in light of a housing crisis where we're trying to improve and build more housing. Having said all that, I think it is really important for us to assert a public goal into development, that public policy and public goals need to be reflected in what we build. And so we do spend a fair amount of time, particularly in larger projects, for example, on the design process and negotiating with architects and developers and making sure that our public policy goals are met by the projects that are built. And it is uh, some architects believe we cross the line. Um, some believe, and this is particularly, um, I think, it is, it is somewhat unique to San Francisco um, in that we have a very strong kind of historical context in this city, you know, the, the Victorians and the kind of the great old uh, streets of this city. And we hear it from two directions. Um, many community members say, why can't you build something that has bay windows and looks like a Victorian? And architects say, why can't you let me build something that's 21st century? And our policy for quite some time has been, just purely on the design issue, if you will, is that buildings should be built of our time. So they should be 21st century buildings, but they also should be designed to work within their context. And that is an amazingly challenging thing to do. It is far more challenging um, for most architects than they will admit and far more challenging than um, most people realize. Um, So um, in San Francisco, what that typically means is that buildings need to have a certain amount of complexity to them. Um, So shadow and light and projection and that sort of thing. And But I tell you, we get... um, we get criticized heavily on both counts, um, you know, including everything from a downtown high-rise to a new three-story house in a neighborhood, right? Some people love it. Some people hate it, um, you know. Um, but overall, I mean, the goal is to reflect public process and to reflect the fact that everything that gets built has an impact on the city. Everything that's built has an effect on its environment, and I believe strongly that we have a role to play there. And not only an impact, but 50, 100 years, yes. right? Like yeah. when I see a development being rushed through somewhere, I'm like, that's what you have to consider, that this, this is going to be here. Um, I'm just so glad you shared that because what you described is literally our job, but it's so easy to forget mm-hmm. um, whether planners are subject to overly politicized situations or have felt stripped of their agency and authority. Um, but when you, when you get back to it, it's, it's literally our job, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of being not the nanny of the public realm, but 
someone has to be looking beyond property lines, mm-hmm. beyond profit. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the, the way I like to think about it is that we're the one entity in the public sector that is specifically charged with thinking long term and thinking broadly. Um, and so um, we have to look at it in those terms. And I have to say, I mean, even though I described kind of the design issue as being reflecting that that kind of policy thinking, it goes way beyond design, right, and, or what we think of, of as design. So, so it, it includes things like how much affordable housing is in a project and what does the code require and how what's on the first floor of a building, what are the types of uses, and you know, a, a whole range of factors and kind of reflecting the increasing complexity of our work as well, right? So some of the most controversial things we get involved with have nothing to do with design. In fact, my guess is that 80% of them have nothing to do with design. And, and that's something, by the way, that's changed dramatically in my career, that our role is much, it was, goes way beyond the physical appearance of what gets built and is much more involved in everything from traffic and transit management to kind of uses to whatever, you, you know, water retention and green roofs and all those things that we deal with that go way beyond the typical design process. Another example to me of an issue sort of magnified in San Francisco, but that almost every community is dealing with. I noticed that within your department, there's an office of short-term rentals, and Mm -hmm. I found that fascinating because some of my client communities are going to just turn a blind eye for as long as they can. They just can't even deal with it. Now, of course, not every community has the tourism appeal of San Francisco, but I I did get a little kick out of that there's an office of short-term rentals. So I'm wondering if you can share either how that came about or what that means or um, if there's things you've learned that might be applicable to other places. Oh, happy to. That's been a very big deal in in the city and in our office. So, um, and it's complicated by the fact that Airbnb is a San Francisco company and a growing San Francisco company. Um, But nonetheless, um, we realized oh gosh, five, six, seven years ago, um, that what was happening with short-term rentals was that there was a growing uh, trend to pull apartments off the normal rental market and simply use them as short-term rental, essentially turning apartments into hotel rooms. Uh, We actually did a session here at APA conference, gosh, I don't know, I can't remember, it was five or six years ago, and I remember asking the audience, um, how many of them did not allow short-term rentals at all? And a third of them raised their hands. And at that point, we were one of those. Um, how many um, allowed them with no limitations? And about a third of them raised their hands. And the rest, the other third, basically had some form of kind of regulations that tried to steer it, steer short-term rental in the right, the right direction. So we spent a lot of time on this issue. We grappled with legislation um, and, and, you know, fast forward a couple of years, the, the, what I'm really proud of the fact is that what we originally proposed, I'm going to say five or six years ago now, was um, essentially where we've ended up. Um, but to get there, we had to go through a process that had relaxed the regulations, forcing our board of supervisors to enact stricter legislation, which Airbnb then sued the city on forcing us to sit at the table and mediate and finally come to an agreement. And ironically, the agreement we ended up with is almost where we started five years ago. So the lesson here is that if they just listened to planners to begin with, their lives would be better. Right. <laughs> but what I, what I will say, and this is the thing I'm, I'm, I'm really, really proud of, when the settlement agreement was finally implemented, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to um, maybe get this number wrong, but something like 4,000 listings on Airbnb were taken down. Um, because the, one of the critical components of the legislation, which Airbnb ultimately agreed to, was that not only did, did their um, hosts have to register, but the registration number had to appear on the listing. Mm. And that, uh, that registration number listing on the website was a critical factor. And they now, and, and, and I have to give credit to Airbnb, they have, they have done what they said they're going to do in the last year or two since the settlement, which is that if somebody comes on and posts something without a registration number, they pull it. Um, and it's been a huge success story. So the Office of Short-Term Rental, because of the 
amount of angst over this issue was set up in the planning department to both register and kind of go through the process of making sure that posts were following the rules to register, but also then to enforce. So I have a six-person team in the department who is solely focused on this issue. Wow. Um, and, it's, and it's really done its job well, and I have to give great kudos to my staff and the whole process on, uh, as to how it's going. So you and I actually met more than 15 years ago, if my, 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 my. If my math's correct. I was in graduate school and was a research intern at APA, so geeked over the opportunity to work on this new book called Planning and Urban Design Standards. Mm. And for those you know, who'd been around, they know the Green Book, Green Bible. This was a moment, at least through the eyes of you know, a grad school intern, to create, in a way, the first ever companion to that. And to witness the decisions made, um, what gets in, what gets out, a lot of that was shaped by an advisory committee that you were on. So I got to be in this room with all of the leaders uh, from across the country who were asked to help shape this very important text. I'm curious what your perspective on the process then was and if you've noticed anything um, in the last 15 years since it first came out. Um, what I mean, the process uh, was very interesting. I, 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 first of all, I very much appreciated the kind of range of people that APA pulled together to do that, and it was not an easy thing. So there were architects and planners and transportation people and a whole range of folks and who I, who I don't remember at the moment in time. I also remember there being not just meetings at your office, but also several kind of extensive long phone conversations, sort of group conference calls about this, that um, going over kind of best practices. Um, and I remember very, I remember very clearly thinking this is an interesting, I mean, it's very, very detailed, of course, and so we were spending a lot of time, and I know that you were all spending way more time, but as an advisory member, I remember looking at very specific practices in other cities and trying to kind of glean whether that is a practice that is unique to that place or that is a more generalized practice that could be applied to, you know, a more, uh, an actual textbook of this nature. Um, and I remember having some very interesting kind of fun conversations about that. Um, having said all that, I think a lot of what we do now has kind of kind of gone beyond what's in there in terms of the complexity issue that I mentioned earlier, right? Just because so much of our world is, is based on sort of very um, issues that are so much more um, interwoven, like, you know, transportation and transit impacts and inclusionary housing issues. And, it, and it's hard to capture that in that kind of book, right? Um, and, I, and I think it's fair to say that that book was mostly based on physical standards, right? But as I said earlier, eight, probably 80% of what we do is not about the physical design of a building. It's about all that other stuff, right? As it should be. Um, but as a guide to that aspect of planning, I think it's great. Um, I know we have it in the office. I know staff refers to it sometimes. I don't know the kind of the impact it's had at that level, but it's, um, I think it's a, great, it's a great document. 2019 is the 50th anniversary of uh, Stonewall Uprising, mm. which many people mark as sort of an important moment in time, a catalyst, if you will, for the gay rights movement. Since then, obviously, a lot has changed. There's still a ways to go. There's been research and debate how this plays out in the built environment, everything from the gayborhood, you know, enclaves, and now it's even... Are, is the gayborhood being gentrified or the straightening of gayborhoods? Obviously, the Castro district in San Francisco is a national or international you know, destination. And this might be a great example of what you're saying, like, that's not going to be in planning and urban design standards, right? Like, right. way beyond the design. But um, for a lot longer time, there's been attention to ethnic enclaves, but this is obviously a type of enclave that's just as important to people yes. mm -hmm. for all kinds of reasons. And San Francisco in 2017 was kind of on the map again for beginning an LGBTQ plus cultural heritage strategy. Right. 
it's on its way to being adopted or formally approved, I understand. Yes, that's right. Can you share the impetus for that, what it means, and your hope for its replicability across mm-hmm. the country? Yeah, that's a great question. I, uh, I will start with a funny anecdote. When I first took the job, um, within just a few weeks, I attended a community meeting in the Castro. We were doing some urban design work um, in the Castro, and, um, and uh, a group of men came up to me at the end of the meeting and said, we're so glad, we're so glad you're here. Can you, uh, they said, the Castro is becoming too straight. Could you help us with some zoning to make that, to undo that? <laughs> and That's I, a new one. That's a new one. So, and I said to them, well, I don't think there's any such thing as a gay zoning district that I could implement, um, but let's talk about what all that means. And so, you know, you fast forward a few years, and what we have started to do in San Francisco um, is develop cultural heritage districts or... Uh, I'm losing the actual the, the kind of generic name for these. And actually, the first of them was in Japantown. Um, and what we, what we realized as we were doing some planning work in Japantown was that the community, most of the Japanese community and Japanese-American community in San Francisco no longer lives in Japantown um, for any number of reasons, including redevelopment in the 60s that devastated much of the neighborhood. But the, for, from a kind of cultural standpoint, the retailing, the the kind of cultural facilities, they are still there and much beloved by that community. And their concern was less about historic preservation of buildings than about preservation of businesses and their spaces and their art and all of those factors that they came around and shopping. Um, and so we developed a strategy around this and the kind of solutions in that strategy mostly have nothing to do with traditional planning techniques. They are things like economic development support to businesses or even the process of identifying which businesses and which cultural institutions were important to them to begin with was part of that process. So we have now replicated that in many places around the city. And I have to say, when we did some some benchmarking looking at other cities that were doing this, we found almost no examples. So I felt like we were inventing the wheel. And we have about a half a dozen of these now in place or uh, or more coming and the one for the LGBTQ district is one of them, or the heritage, the heritage strategy is one of them. And so it's, it's extraordinarily important. Look, this is a city that, that believes, and I think for good reason, that it was the epicenter of the gay rights movement, was one of those meccas that the gay community felt they could come to. And San Francisco is uh, the, a place where in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and, and it, was, it became known as a city that accepts everyone. That was a city that, you know, anyone, no matter what type of background, who they were, where they came from, they were welcome here and had that reputation as becoming this quirky city as a result, right? And that's one of the things I love about this place. And it's one of the things that breaks my heart about the current challenges of our housing crisis, which is that we are losing that ability, right? But um, the gay rights movement is huge here. I mean, Harvey Milk and, you know, Harvey Milk's camera shop where he started his business and ran his campaign is a much loved location on Castro Street and is marked with a, an important plaque on the sidewalk and and you know people are always photographing themselves there so it's it's very important and it's dear to my heart and I know that um, as a gay man it's been really it, I've been really proud of how much it that has changed and grown interestingly interestingly the Castro is less gay as a residential neighborhood I think I don't, I don't know that we actually have stats on that but that's partially because the gay community feels comfortable in so many different places uh, and it's not just in the Castro, where, which was, of course, our enclave. But culturally, it is still there. And so these, you know, the LGBT museum is there. Um, institutions that are important to the community are there. And it will retain that status, I think, um, if I have anything to say about it anyway. Um, so I think it's important. But I also think it's important that we are – this is, again, one another example of how we're broadening our thinking and how we do our work – this whole idea of establishing a cultural district or a cultural heritage strategy or any is been now been applied to many different communities across the city. We have in the mission, there's a, the kind of core, wonderful kind of street that reflects the heritage of the Latino community is 24th Street. And there is that has been codified as what's called the Latino Cultural District. Um, and. It is implemented partially, but only slightly through zoning. It's like all these other mechanisms that help to reinforce that cultural district that have nothing to do with typical land use controls. 
Uh, and it's challenging for that reason, right? We're kind of used to looking at things like, okay, you build it in this way, you put certain uses in, and you have a problem solved. Well, problem not solved. I'm sorry, not in this kind of context. So one of the things we struggle with, for example, is what if an upscale Mexican restaurant wants to move in? What do we do about that? And is that okay? Um, you know, and there's all sorts of interesting conversations to be had around that. And I think they are really important conversations to have. I'm a big fan of these, by the way. I think it's, a, it's really, really interesting and um, really forces us to think more broadly about our work and who we're serving and um, that whole range of issues. Or even the fact, as planners, our instinct might be, well, let's track changes in the gay population, mm-hmm. residential population of the Castro. So we're going to go knocking on doors and asking people, right? It's, it's fraught. Um, Absolutely. And so our instincts and the tools we're accustomed to using, even if well-intentioned, don't necessarily serve us well. So I think planners need to have a, a awareness and almost a humility in addressing these issues because there isn't a clear roadmap for us. That's right. That's right. This is particularly an area where there is not a clear roadmap and we have to kind of invent it as we go. And one of the things that I've liked, enjoyed the last couple of years in my work here is that I have encouraged my staff to experiment with strategies, with policy recommendations, because I think it's, frankly, why not? I mean, as long as we're not, you know, kind of hurting someone along the way, I think we have to be willing to try some things and have to be willing to accept that they don't work when they don't work and say, okay, we tried that. Here's why it didn't work. Let's set it aside and try something else. And I think that's a great way to think about some of this work because we simply don't know the answers. We don't have a roadmap for some of this work and these increasing complexities of our cities and particularly because of the displacement issues, whether it's the gay community or the Latino community or the low-income community. Their displacement in the city is becoming such a key issue for that is a result of all this growth that um, we have to figure uh, out new ways of doing business. That's what I was just going to say, and we, we can't do nothing. Yes, that's right. I had the same conversation with Sadhu Johnson, city manager of Vancouver, B.C. Hmm. It's difficult for agencies, public agencies. Uh, The stakes are higher for failure because you have to do it in a very public way Mm -hmm. where we all like to applaud innovation and understand with that comes iteration and failure. But that's a very scary thing for the public sector. So I'm encouraged, encouraged to hear that you invite your staff to explore that a bit. Yeah, I, just, I mean, I mean it's, it's not easy um, because uh, government, just by its very nature, is not very nimble. Um, and so we, what I've learned, and, and I learned this early on in, the, in our work in the public realm in Seattle and in San Francisco, is that to kind of do some of this innovative stuff like the Parklet program, you know, which we kind of started here in the U.S. anyway, um, you kind of had to step out of the bureaucracy and say, okay, let's try this over here. And Which we basically won't... means don't tell the lawyers. Well, it, makes, <laughs> it means don't tell the lawyers, but it means at least saying to folks who normally have the role in approving these things, let us try something different as a pilot, or let us try something different that maybe doesn't go through normal channels, but let's just see how it works. And that's exactly what happened with Parklets, and boy, has that exploded in popularity. It's amazing. One final question on the cultural heritage strategies. Do you have an example or at least a flavor of, um, because these issues are so intangible or not, you know, we can't necessarily write a new standard or um, zone our way into it or out of it, how these intangible things turn into plan recommendations? Can you share one that um, stands out as a recommendation to help implement or protect these special places? Yeah, I mean, um, I will talk about the Mission District because it's because it's one that I was personally involved with for a, at a very detailed level, um, and uh, and is also the neighborhood in San Francisco that is most uh, impacted by the growth of the city because it's the heart of the Latino community, but it's also a kind of very high preference of choice among millennials and new folks coming to the city. Very has excellent public transit, all that stuff. Um, so we looked at. A whole range of policies to try to stabilize that neighborhood. We worked with the community. We're still working with that community for years to implement what we call the the mission action plan. And it's not it's not a traditional kind of land use plan. There are land use components to it, 
but there are seven overall buckets of strategies. And some, there's a whole category around um, the retention of businesses and artists. There's a whole category around um, SROs, single room occupancy uh, structures. Um, there's, uh, there is an affordable housing category, and I'm not naming all of them off the top of my head. And each one of those categories has a whole series of very specific strategies to kind of address the issues. So um, on the land use side, for example, on, on 24th Street that I mentioned, we implemented controls on, uh, for example, on merging storefronts and limitations on merging storefronts. Because one of the things that that street is characterized by are very small storefronts, which by their nature, because they're small, are more affordable local businesses, and so we limited, if not outright banned, I can't remember if we instituted a full ban, on mergers, um, because inevitably those are larger spaces, have higher, higher paying tenants, and all of that stuff. Uh, we have limitations on large restaurants in the mission, um, because in this environment with changing retail uh, patterns, um, large high-end restaurants tend to be one of the most uh, sought-after tenants um, by building owners. So there are limitations on that. There's limitations on sales of alcohol, um, stuff like that. Then there are also economic development programs to help small businesses. And one of the interesting ones that's citywide that has had a big impact is what's called the Legacy Business Program, where businesses that are, I think, 30 years old or more can apply to become, quote, a legacy business designated by the city through review of the Historic Preservation Commission. And that allows them to apply for some financial assistance to help them out when their rent increases or um, that sort of thing. So it's, a, a, it's an incredibly popular program. And, and dozens and dozens of businesses in the last three years have been designated as legacy businesses, which is really fun. Very cool. Thanks for sharing those examples. I do think they're relatable to, to many of our communities. It's a very exciting time in San Francisco. You have a lot of work ahead of you. If people want to learn more, where should they go? Well, I think we do have a very, I, if I say so myself, we have a very good website. Um, and everything I just mentioned is, on the, is available on that website. So um, if you look at what we call MAP 2020, Mission Action Plan 2020, it has a very prominent position on our website. Is All the strategies I laid out are on that website. The cultural heritage districts, although I'm getting the actual name wrong, I apologize. I can't remember the actual name, um, but th that's on our website. And a lot of the neighborhood-based planning work that we've done over the last decade is on there, too. Neighborhood plans such as the Eastern Neighborhoods Plan or the Transit Center District Plan, a number of plans that have been conducted in the areas of the city where, where a lot of growth is happening. And we have, those plans are designed to manage that growth um, in ways that work for the city and work for the neighborhoods. So all that is on our website. It's very extensive. Highly recommend that. And that's, by the way, sfplanning.org. <laughs> I want to thank you for your time and your insights. It was really a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you, Courtney. Likewise, really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.